Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 13th, 2013, and my guest is Glenn Reynolds, the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee. He blogs at instapundit.com, and among other books, he is the author of An Army of Davids. Glenn, welcome to EconTalk. Hi, it's great to be here. I expect we'll talk about a variety of subjects today, but I want to start with the recent piece you wrote for USA Today, A Revolution in the Works. There's a question mark at the end of that title, A Revolution in the Works, but you're suggesting the possibility of fundamental political change in the United States. Uh, What kind of change are you imagining, and what evidence do you see for that change? Well, you know, in the words of Han Solo, I don't know, I can imagine an awful lot. Um, What triggered the column uh, is a poll from uh, the Pew people, uh, which showed that more than half of Americans view the government as a threat to their freedom. And what's especially interesting about the Pew poll is that it's not just, you know, you'd think, well, obviously Republicans and gun owners are going to be unhappy with the Democratic administration's proposing gun control, but actually 38% of Democrats, which is rather a lot, uh, and 45% of non-gun owners uh, shared this view that the government was a threat. So it's a pretty large number. And then you've got uh, a Rasmussen poll from uh, last fall that said that only 22% of likely voters think that America's government has the consent of the governed. Well, that's pretty drastic. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't really mention this in the column, but the other thing that's sort of troubling is that we've seen a number of polls that show that the only really respected institution in our society is the military. And, you know, call me crazy, but in a democracy where people see the government as a threat to their freedoms and don't think it has the consent of the governed, uh, but do respect the military a lot, that seems to me to be sort of an unstable and uh, unfortunate combination. Uh, I agree. It, it And it, although you suggest or you, you provide evidence that, that there's some broad-based – Anxiety about about threatening the government. It um, I wonder how deep that is. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, one one response that I've seen some people make uh, to the Pew poll is uh, really you you don't trust the government and you don't respect these politicians, but you keep electing these people. What the hell's wrong with you? Uh, and that's at one level sort of a fair critique, right? If if you know a majority of Americans think the government is a threat to their freedom, how come? Uh, they reelected the vast majority of incumbents. Which they uh, regularly but, do. But, you know, the response to that, I think, is to say uh, they're not actually presented a choice of voting for somebody who would fundamentally change the system in that way. There, There's nobody who says, you know, uh, outside of a small number of Tea Party candidates who sometimes win, uh, but there, there's sort of no mainstream Democrat or Republican who says, I'm going to shrink the government down to 1910 levels, and then you won't have to be scared of it anymore. So, you know, your choice is basically, it's a case of choosing your poison. It's it's not as if uh, voting Democrat or Republican makes that big a difference. Do you really think, though, that that trend, uh, that there isn't, that's not 
Don't you think that's a longstanding trend in American history that they don't trust the government? Uh, and, and I think if you ask folks uh, if they trust their own representatives, saying Congress, you know, they say Congress is a bunch of bums, but not my guy. And they also say the same thing about typically corporations. You know, my boss is decent. Most of them awful. Uh, isn't that a common, longstanding uh, view of most Americans? Well, to some degree, sure. I mean, after you know, our, our country is to some degree founded on distrust of the government. But Pew does say that the numbers are the worst they've been since they've been asking the question. So, the, you know, the trend is not our friend. Uh, trust in the federal government is at a historic low. Uh, and they say it's the first time a majority of the public has said the federal government threatens their personal rights and freedoms. So I do think that there's more than just, you know, what, what I would regard as sort of a healthy distrust of government. I think that, that it goes a bit beyond that. And I think one of the changes, you know, in the column I quoted a science fiction writer named Jerry Purnell, uh, and Purnell's pretty old. He's, he's been around a while. And, uh, he wrote in 2008, he said, we've always known that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. But it's worse now because capture of the government is so much more important than it once was. There was a time when there was enough freedom that it hardly mattered which brand of crooks ran government. That has not been true for a long time, not during most of your lifetimes and for much of mine, and it will probably never be true again. And I think that is the reason why distrust in the government is so profound. Now people realize that if the wrong people are in power, they can really screw with you. The government's got a lot of power. It's got a lot of reach. It does a lot of things. And it's no longer, uh, you know, a case of the old Chinese proverb that, you know, heaven is high and the emperor is far away. Uh, the, the government is in your f face. And the more powerful the government becomes, the more valuable a prize it is. So the more dirty and underhanded things people are willing to do in order to seize the prize. Uh, and the more afraid they become when somebody else has control. So, so all of that, I think, contributes to... Uh, a rational uh, increase in fear of government that is independent from just a general sense that it's a bunch of politicians who'd sell out their own grandmother. Well, there's certainly – government certainly is more powerful than it was 50 years ago. Uh, but do you think in particular it's some – it's things like the drone activity or the TARP bailouts, just to pick two, that I find particularly uh, unpleasant – that are causing people to be worried about threats to their personal freedom? Well, I think there's a lot of that, sure. I mean, you've got, you know, you, you've had the growth of a surveillance state, which, uh, you know, at one level was inevitable, and at another level you can say really existed in the 90s, uh, as it did. Uh, but it's people are much more aware of it, and it's become, in fact, much more uh, intrusive. Uh, and the other side of it is, when you look at stuff like the TARP bailout, I do think there was a sense that at one point that there were things the country just wouldn't stand for that politicians would be afraid to do. And I think now that we've seen, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars essentially handed to political cronies, uh, people realize, you know, there's really, maybe there's not, there's really not that much that they'd stop at. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm, my listeners know I'm particularly worried about this trend. Um, but I do see some swinging back against that trend, right? I think. Giving money to cronies is slightly out of fashion. It's gotten a little harder maybe than it was before. Um, but, you know, that's a empirical question, I suppose. Yeah, I'd like to believe that. I'm, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Hard to know. I don't, I'd rather not yeah. see, but we may, we may unfortunately. Um, now, your solution, you propose some solutions to this trust problem and this fear of uh, threat. And your first 
I have to say it because it's in the piece, uh, try to say it with a straight face. We just need to elect people who are trustworthy. And a lot of people yeah. feel that way, I think. Right. That would work out great. The problem with that is that there aren't any politicians that everyone trusts. And as I say in the piece, uh, if we did have somebody that everyone trusts, the odds would be good that that trust would just be misplaced. All, yeah. all that would mean is we found somebody who's really good at fooling us. Well, my my uh, my professor, George Stigler, the late George Stigler, used to call it the Ralph Nader theory of, uh, of regulation. You just need the right people involved. So all the agencies that have been captured and, and serve the special interests rather than the general public, we just need – they're just run by bad people. We just need to get the good people in. Of course, good people become bad people when they're – facing the same incentives as everybody before them. Yeah, yeah. I my position is more like uh, Milton Friedman, unsurprisingly, who said what we really want is a system that has incentives such that even the bad people will behave well. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. I love that. So that's the challenge. So your second solution is uh, to reduce the power of government. Yes. And uh, is that going to work? Oh, I think that absolutely would work. Um uh, I just think that it's it's sort of hard to do because it uh, – well, uh, you've probably seen the movie Blazing Saddles. Yes, I have. And there is a scene in it which I regard as one of the most powerful metaphors for our political situation uh, ever produced. And it's the one where Mel Brooks playing Governor Le Petamain has all his cronies around a big conference table. And he says, gentlemen, we've got to protect our phony baloney jobs. <laughs> and the problem with making the government smaller is – that it threatens a lot of people's phony baloney jobs. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of economists make, and not just economists, but a lot of other critics of government, to think that the only question is sort of money. I think the other issue that people guard almost as vigorously, and maybe more vigorously sometimes, is the non-monetary economy of self-importance. Oh, yeah. I think for politicians is really... What drives them more than anything else, I think, is the sense of being a big man. And it, um, there, there's actually a great story, uh, a book called Clockers, which is about dr- low-level drug dealers. Uh, and it explains that the most important reward of being a low-level drug dealer isn't really the money, because actually you don't make that much money for all the risk you take. Uh, it's that when you walk into a room full of druggies, everybody's face lights up because they're happy to see you and you're an yeah. important person and respected in their lives. And that's why you'll do it, even though you may not make any more money than McDonald's. And I think for politicians, they're basically just, just like drug dealers, only more so. Uh, some of them don't even, I mean, I was shocked when Bob Menendez uh, had to cough up the money for those private jet trips. Uh, it was a big chunk of his net worth. He's, you know, he's not that rich. Uh, he's getting his rewards in non-monetary form. Uh, there's a lot of ego boosts to it. And I think that a big, powerful government makes politicians, and not only politicians, and not only bureaucrats, but also journalists and the people who cover them feel more important. I mean, journalists seem to always sort of slant in favor of bigger government. Uh, and you sort of wonder why, because they're, you know, often critics of particular things the government does. Correct. But they're sort of cheerleaders for big government in general. And I really think it's because if you cover the government, the bigger and more important the government is, the bigger and more important you are. Well, yeah, there's some truth to that. The problem, I certainly agree that the the political establishment, as you, as you describe in your piece, are going to fight very hard against making government smaller. But they have the natural ally of those who think government ought to be bigger because they think that makes the world a better place. So it's a classic – a bootlegger and Baptist coalition of one group that has the moral high ground. Those are the people who think that 
better gov- bigger government makes uh, helps the children or the uh, elderly or stimulates the economy. Then you have the people who like living in that world, the economists and politicians and others who get to play with the levers of power and get people who pay attention to them because they're powerful. And that's a pretty powerful um, – those two combined seem to be – we're not doing such a good job against them. Well, you know, it's funny. One of my friends who's, who's a, been a long-term upper-level bureaucrat in Washington said to me his favorite phenomenon to see is these people who come through these uh, usually politically appointed jobs. And he says they think everybody loves them. And then they leave the job and they realize that everybody just loved the job. And that once they're not in the job anymore, they don't have nearly as many friends as they thought they did. And I think, you know, the smarter ones do know this, and that's why they try to hang on to power. Yeah, well, um, as um, someone once told me, I may have told the story before, it's, it always bears retelling. Uh, someone got a job uh, in an influential position at a very large foundation with the ability to hand out large sums of money, which, of course, politicians share that opportunity. And uh, when he was thinking of taking the job, his friend told him, congratulations, uh, you'll never have to pay for dinner again, and you'll never, get an, you'll never get an honest compliment. And that's what politicians, I think that's the world they live in. They do pay for dinner now and then, but uh, they are loved because of their ability to command resources. And it, it's, um, for some people, that's very pleasant. No, I, th- I, think it, I think it's actually... Uh, for a lot of people, it's, it is, uh, addictive. And I actually mean that in the most literal sense. I, I think that people are addicted to the dopamine rush they get no, by no feeling doubt. important. And, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, they're talking about why Frank Lautenberg might run for another term, you know, or is at least at 89 having trouble deciding to retire from the Senate. But, you know, if you look at these guys, they, they last in those jobs for a long time, but usually they retire and they go down pretty fast once they don't have all that uh, emotional gratification. So I, th- I think people really like it. Uh, no doubt. But so what's the uh, – given those two uh, realities, that it's hard to imagine electing trustworthy people and it's challenging to get government uh, smaller, what's going to stop this trend toward bigger, more powerful government that uh, – how are we going to reverse it if the people in power are going to fight it? And there's a lot of people who support this, the, the growth of government. Well, the big ally in this is uh, Stein's law. You know, Herbert Stein said it. I really think this is the quote for the current decade. Uh, he, he said something that can't go on forever won't. Uh, the current trend can't go on forever. The federal government is fundamentally broke, although in denial and able to fake it out for a while. Uh, the path of increasing the size and power of government is fundamentally unsustainable. Uh, and it, it's always funny to me that the people who go on the most about sustainability in other areas seem the least concerned about sustainability when it comes to things like government and spending. Uh, but that means that since something that can't go on forever won't, this won't go on forever. Uh, the question is sort of what comes next. And there are a lot of different possibilities, uh, ranging anywhere from civil war and a military coup, which I think is not especially likely, but is probably more likely than it's been in my lifetime, given those poll numbers we started out talking about. I think those are warning signs for me who's scared of that. Uh, to sort of a hard economic collapse in a federal government that goes broke and has to do what, you know, certainly has not been unthinkable in lots of other countries when the government goes broke, which is actually shrink and cut back and uh, do less. Uh, 
uh, to a softer landing uh, and possibly to a situation in which the people who are right now unhappy, distrustful, think the government doesn't have the consent of the governed, but not least because of the efforts of the political class, not having those feelings crystallized into any particular plan of action, uh, suddenly crystallize. And at that point, I think you might see something like a constitutional convention. Uh, and I know, you know, Randy Barnett uh, favors that. A lot of people favor that. I am not as strongly in favor of that as uh, they are, but I'm not as scared of it as some people are either. I think ultimately anything you do has to pass three-fourths of the state legislatures. And although, you know, some dumb constitutional amendments have managed to clear that hurdle, uh, it's pretty hard. But a, a, how would a constitutional – for those of us who don't remember the first one, <clears throat> uh, I don't mean to suggest that you do, but you, you've, <laughs> you know a little bit more about it. Uh, how would it – what would be the the logistics of a constitutional convention? We've had one. What, what would right. a second one – what are the rules of the game? Well, that's actually an interesting question. Um, the basic way it works is Congress calls it, which it can do on its own, uh, but it would most likely only do when forced to uh, by getting calls from thirty uh, from three fourths of the state legislatures. Uh, once you do that, uh, delegates are elected from each state, and they go to the constitutional convention where they produce whatever amendments they want, which could be minor changes or could be an entire new constitution. Uh, followed by uh, sending those out to the states for ratification. They bypassed Congress on the convention route. Uh, the convention route was put into the Constitution because the framers figured that Congress would be unlikely to approve constitutional amendments that reduced its power, and in fact it never has. And, they were uh, onto something, weren't they? <laughs> yes, they really were. So they, they wanted a bypass route, uh, and the convention method is that. Now, what's kept the convention from happening in the past is – Whenever it looks like a convention is going to be called, Congress generally uh, gives ground and proposes an amendment that satisfies uh, the main complaint. And that's pretty good. I mean, that's, you know, as they say, the value of the sword of Damocles is that it hangs, not that it falls. Uh, and the threat of a convention is often enough to spur uh, something less. But if you really believe that the whole system is broken, uh, then... Maybe what you want to do uh, is uh, start over. So, how would that actually get? You got a hundred, whatever it is, a hundred? Is it fifty? Did fifty states only get get delegates? Yeah, the states get delegates. I District of Columbia doesn't. I don't know about uh, that. Okay, but some there's a hundred or so people hanging around, and they yeah, how many they spend? I mean, a state the state delegations, you know, would be elected, and once it is. Um, completed, it goes back and gets ratified in the states, uh, which actually could be by state legislatures or could be by specially elected conventions in the states. But there are no rules for how that convention is going to be run. So there could be a group of people who say we have to start from scratch. There could be a group of people who say there's just one amendment that's crucial. And there could be another group that say we need 50 or 60 amendments. This is, we're in such right. bad shape. Right. And that's exactly how the first constitutional convention went. There was not a lot of thought, at least not publicly expressed, with the idea of starting from scratch. They were just going to sort of clean up the Articles of Confederation somewhat. Uh, as it turned out, uh, they did a lot more. So let's say we go the unradical route of a convention that just, say, proposes a certain number of amendments. Uh, those would then go back to the states. Some of them might pass, some of them might not. 
uh, and that would be the, the Constitution would be amended. That would be the end of it, right? Right. So given this mood in the country that you've talked about, what amendments might emerge from something like that that would change the malaise that we have about our political system? Not obvious to well, me what those might be. Have you thought about that? That's at all? sort of hard to say, and, and the reason is that, in fact, as I say, uh, there's a lot of malaise, there's a lot of general dissatisfaction, but it hasn't crystallized into a program. And indeed, I think uh, one of the great ongoing efforts by the political class is to make sure that doesn't happen, and to keep people sufficiently divided and distracted that no matter how generally unhappy they are, uh, it doesn't turn into any concrete plan that threatens the political class. Uh, now, I've made some proposals of my own. You know, Harvard uh, Law School had a conference on constitutional conventions last fall, uh, and uh, it was very interesting. Larry Lessig put it together uh, with the Tea Party group, uh, Tea Party Patriots, and Move On. So it was a very interesting cross-section. It's surprising how well people got along. Uh, but a couple of proposals I've had are, uh, number one, you might call it the no representation without taxation proposal, but would be essentially a uniformity requirement that everybody has to pay taxes, uh, such that you don't have a substantial class of people who get government benefits but don't kick in. And I would, if I were starting from scratch, I would actually uh, require that everybody pay a significant enough percentage of their income that it hurts no matter what the income level is, uh, and that that go up and down every year as federal spending goes up and down. And I think that would provide an amazing amount of discipline. All you have to do is look at how much resistance there is to even minor increases in things like local property or sales taxes that voters feel very directly, uh, compared with the way deficit spending lets the federal government sort of spend and not uh, have to face the political backlash. Well, along those lines, I would, you know, my my... F- one of my one of my favorite policy changes would be to get rid of the fake wall between payroll taxes and income taxes because I think a lot of people don't perceive their payroll taxes. Half of them are paid by their employer on paper at least. They're actually probably coming out of their own paycheck. But most of us don't see that directly, so we don't notice it. Uh, and then so many people then don't pay any income tax right now. I uh, just saw the statistic uh, recently that a family of four – a uh, husband, wife, and two children who earned fifty-one thousand, and this may now be a different number, but fifty-one thousand uh, dollars exempts you from income tax. Uh, that doesn't seem like now, it's true. You still pay payroll tax if you're employed, um, but that doesn't seem like good for a democracy to me. No, I, I agree, and I think that's that's one of the important things uh, that really ought to be controlled. I mean, again, you know, my goal is to create things that regulate based on political pressure, sort of following the Milton Friedman approach rather than the Nader approach, and I think that's a good one. Something I'm a little more agnostic about, because I just am suspicious that people could get around it, are things like a balanced budget amendment. Uh, We've had a whole bunch of balanced budget amendment proposals, and if you actually read most of them, they tend not to have a lot of teeth. They've usually got a lot of uh, loopholes, exceptions if there's a military conflict, which there usually is. Always is, Uh, yeah or a supermajority that isn't very big to waive them or whatever. So it's not um, – they're not very good. I, I'm not against it, but I don't think it helps. I, I'm also pretty much agnostic on term limits. I am um, – I I'm used to be opposed to them. 
Uh, and as I see how effective gerrymandering is, uh, I, you know, which I think is one of the reasons why people hate Congress but love their congressmen, because I think that's how, you know, or at least tolerate their congressmen because of, of gerrymandering. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that's something that is difficult to deal with that probably, uh, wouldn't be helped that much by term limits, because if you've got a gerrymandered district, uh, especially with modern gerrymandering technology, the new guy that gets elected in it is likely to look an awful lot like the old guy, because I mean, the district I mean, is so, uh, uh, you know, um, one direct, one dimensional. I mean, I think part of the problem you pointed to earlier, which is that you, you asked why we keep electing people that we don't seem to respect. One answer is, well, we respect ours, but not the others. But even for those of us who don't like ours, which would be me, um, it's sort of the nature of the system, right? Once you have a system that says this group has the ability to pass laws that affect lots of people and you can't opt out of them, can't opt out of Social Security, you got to pay property taxes even though you don't send your kid to the public school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, by definition, almost, not definition, but the incentives are such that the median voter model, the hoteling model, other models that look at political choice, that you only have two candidates. They're going to push toward the middle, and anyone else is going to be pretty unhappy when it's over. And so and you don't really have two candidates because in the gerrymandered district <laughs> – Well, that's true. Uh, I mean, for example, in my district – uh, we have a guy, and I like him okay because he's a Republican, but he's about as libertarian as a, a Republican as you're likely to get elected. He's okay. I don't hate him. Uh, but my wife managed the libertarian campaign against him, uh, back in 96. And the libertarian candidate, I think, actually wound up getting more votes than the Democrat who ran against him, who was just a local environmental activist, you know, with no money. Yeah, not trying. And to. that's sort of typical to how it is. There, there's always, you know, uh, my congressman, Jimmy Duncan, who has the same seat his father had and I think his grandfather had, Isn't that uh, nice? and <laughs> basically runs effectively unopposed every time. And, you know, so when people say, well, you shouldn't keep reelecting these people, I mean, what's the alternative, really? I mean, it's, and there are a lot of districts like that. I mean, that probably half the congressional districts in the country are that way, one way or another. I mean, maybe they've got Sheila Jackson Lee in them instead of Jimmy Duncan, but, uh, still, they're, they're not really open. And, uh, I think I would be very happy to entertain a constitutional amendment that would limit gerrymandering, but short of making members of Congress at large, uh, I don't really know how you do that. But it, it's a curious thing that now we see more turnover in the Senate, which the framers thought was going to be sort of the long-serving, uh, you know, aristocratic House, uh, than we do in the House of Representatives, because with gerrymandering, people can stay there for a long, long time, and unless the state changes its complexion enough that you get redistricting, they're just not in much of a threat. But it, I raise it because um, when you think of a constitutional convention, one of the things you think about is changes in the actual structure of governance, right? We could move to a parliamentary system. I don't think Americans have much taste for that, but you could imagine at least uh, things like the Electoral College being eliminated, other things that maybe Congress wouldn't have the same term length. Maybe there'd be term limits or not, but maybe you could change the length of the terms. You could change the Senate and the House. Do you think anything like that could possibly happen? Yeah, I do. And in fact, I have a proposal along those lines of my own. It wasn't original with me, uh, but it is to create a third House of Congress, uh, which I call a House of Repeal, in which people run for election and in which their only power is to repeal laws. And if that one House repeals a law, that law is repealed. 
And when you go before the voters every two or four years or whatever term you choose for it, the only thing you've got to run on is which laws you struck down. Because right now, one reason why we have growth of big government is there's literally nobody in the government with an institutional incentive to shrink government. Courts can strike down laws as unconstitutional, and, you know, they do sometimes, but it doesn't do anything for them institutionally to do so. Uh, the other two branches are all about making government bigger, and there's nobody, you know, everybody runs uh, for election and tells the voters what they're going to do for them. Uh, it would be nice if we had somebody who could run for election and tell the voters what they're going to undo for them. That brings me back to my previous point. While there is, I think, a lot of distrust of government, uh, your view and mine, I think, are very much in the minority. I, I think most people are happy the government's bigger. They may not like this piece or that piece. They don't like the drones or they don't like the bailouts or they don't like the TSA check taking my making me take off my shoes. But you know, if you ask them, do you want to keep Social Security? Do you want to keep Medicare? Do you want to keep a strong military presence generally? There's a big, giant consensus for those large projects of government. So isn't our real challenge to get more people to join our views? Well, I think it cuts both ways. I mean, uh, I think actually one of the reasons why people think that is because that's all we talk about. Again, every everything you hear from a politician is what new law they're going to pass, what new program they're going to start uh, to make things better. Uh, if you heard other politicians talking about getting rid of things to make things better, uh, and if people were running campaign commercials about that, uh, I think attitudes might very well shift to follow that as well. That's a cheerful thought. I like that. I, ho I wish it were true. It could be. <laughs> uh, uh, let's shift I'd gear. like to find out. Yeah, I, I would too. But uh, you know, right now it doesn't happen very often. So it suggests that it's not a pop. It's not a. It's not a good position to sell uh, to the voters. So uh, I, I'm interested in a project of trying to figure out ways to make that more appealing. Uh, but well, that I, I think part of it is you want to have your ducks in a row for when the opportunity presents itself. I mean, the Obama presidency is, I think, proof of that. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, we seemed to have sort of a neoliberal consensus that the era of big government was over and all of that. And the people who didn't think that just basically hung around and waited until we had a combination of an economic crisis and uh, open presidential seat and, uh, you know, a Republican Party that had sort of overstayed its time and, and lost its mojo. And they swept in and they just started doing stuff. And one of the things that is both cheering and troubling to me is that a lot of the stuff they're doing is stuff that they never would have been elected to do if they'd sold it in 2008. But that now that they're in, people kind of go along. But I think the cheering part of that is I think it works the other way, too. Yeah, it's, I, I can imagine a candidate. I'm not sure what that person's name is, but one could imagine a candidate who could galvanize support for smaller government. Um, although the ones who've claimed to be that candidate in our lifetime actually presided over larger government. Um, so-called conservatives like Ronald Reagan. Oh. George well, nobody Bush. has ever presided over smaller government in my lifetime. Yeah, no, they haven't. Um, I want to I want to shift gears. I want to talk about related though. Uh, we had a recent guest on the program, Lewis Michael Seidman, and he suggested the Constitution's out of date. Uh, it makes us beholden to a group of dead people who lived over two hundred years ago, and we should just ignore it unless something in it makes sense. Like he happens to be a defender of the Second Amendment, which is. It's nice. We wouldn't get rid of that or the First Amendment. He likes that one too. But basically, we should only, you know, we should keep good laws and get rid of bad ones. Good practices get rid of bad ones. And um, so that you just avoid the Constitutional Convention altogether. You just stop using the Constitution. 
What do you think? Yeah, I, I call this I call this the Raj Kuthrapali approach to constitutional law. Uh, I don't know if you watch Big Bang Theory. I don't. Uh, but Raj is, is Indian, of course, and he's lecturing his sister from India on Hindu rules about modesty and sexual propriety. And she just looks at him and says, you're talking to me about this as you're eating a cheeseburger. And he just looks at her and says, does it make sense? Some of it's crazy. What do you do? And that's basically the Simon approach to the Constitution, right? The parts he likes make sense and the others are crazy. What do you do? Here's the problem with public officials, because that's really his audience, deciding to ignore the Constitution. If you're the president, if you're a member of Congress, if you are a TSA agent, the only reason why somebody should listen to what you say instead of horsewhipping you out of town for your impertinence is because you exercise power via the Constitution. If the Constitution doesn't count, you don't have any legitimate power. You are a thief, a brigand, an officious busybody, somebody who should be tarred and feathered and run out of town on a rail for uh, trying to exercise power you don't possess. So if you're going to, you know, if we're going to start ignoring the Constitution, I'm fine with that. The first part I'm going to start ignoring is the part that says I have to do whatever they say. But his argument is, is that we already ignore the Constitution. It's not really much of a binding document. Oh, well, then I'm free to do whatever I want. Uh, and actually, that is a damning admission, because what that really says is, if you believe Simon's argument, if you believe that we already ignore the Constitution anyway, is that, in fact, the government rules by sheer naked force and nothing else. And, uh, you know, if that's what you believe, then uh, all this talk of revolution suddenly doesn't seem so crazy. It seems almost mandatory. Well, he would say well, – I won't speak for him, but some would say that, that uh, well, there's a social contract. We've all agreed to kind of play by these rules of oh, really? electing officials and, and – um, Wait, the rules I agreed to electing these officials are, are the Constitution. I thought we were going to ignore that. That's my social contract. And so what would you um, propose to – what's your answer to his point that we don't, we don't pay attention to it and we just indulge our prejudices anyway at the Supreme um, Court level? His argument is that the Supreme Court doesn't really use the Constitution. They think it's a good law. They just find something. Uh, they find a penumbra if they have to or a, a, you know, a subtlety that wasn't obvious. And if they don't like it, they find a reason to strike it down. Well, that's just warmed over legal realism, and you know there, there's a certain amount of truth to it. And you know, I wrote a piece back 20 years ago in the Columbia Law Review called Chaos and the Court, in which I used chaos theory to argue that something made up of nine individuals with different views and such could never produce coherent uh, and consistent rules over any period of time, uh, which I think is true. Uh, that's not the same as saying we should deliberately ignore the Constitution and just do what we want. And I think, you know... Uh, call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure that whenever somebody writes a piece in the New York Times saying we should ignore the Constitution and do what we want, it's because, again, they want more government and more power. And uh, I'm not inclined to play along. And again, the only reason why I have to listen to anything any of these people say is twofold. One is that they've got a gun, and the other is that the Constitution says I should listen. Only one of those uh, isn't vitiated if I just get a bigger gun. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so let me ask you, uh, for those of us who think that the Constitution has been ignored in one direction, which is the direction of, of – uh, it's supposed to restrain government. I think it's not been very effective at it. Uh, I've argued I, when I had Professor Seidman on the program that we need to go in the other direction. We need to uh, – it's true. I agree. We don't – we do ignore it most of the time. We should honor it. Uh, what are the prospects for that? Right, one view says – 
my one view, my view, your view probably, is that we want a smaller government. Why don't we just honor the Constitution? And I think the answer is, is that since most people don't want it, they've ignored it. Yeah, I mean, I think one argument is that we're already living in Simon's world. Uh, but I think actually I, I'm a little more hopeful than that. And one reason is, you know, if you look at some areas, you, you see real progress. I mean, uh, we're currently in a national debate about gun control, for example, but the fact that we're in this natural debate and the fact that uh, not much is happening is evidence that we've gone a long way since uh, 1994 when they passed the assault weapons ban. Now that's, they say, pretty much off the table. And part of that is because people have decided that the Second Amendment does actually restrain the government, at least somewhat. And the Supreme Court, which I think nobody thought 20 years ago would rule that, has gone along. Uh, the Second Amendment uh, decisions from the Supreme Court, I think, follow the culture more than lead it. Uh, which is not that unusual with the court. Right, but, that's uh, but I think for people who say, and, and, and this is something I actually hate, is this sort of gloomy strand of, you know, libertarians and conservatives, uh, you know, which is uh, always, you know, we're always going down, things are always getting worse, there's a one-way ratchet away from liberty. It's much more uh, fluid than that, and I think things can improve uh, rather than just go downhill. There are certainly powerful institutional forces uh, in favor of the government grabbing more power and doing more. Uh, but there are also uh, powerful forces the other way. And I think that, you know, you, you have to fight the fight. You can't just give it up. Well, you know, I like being optimistic too. And I, I think one sign of that's encouraging are the number of people who are alarmed about the size of government. And I compare it to my youth, uh, say the 60s and 70s, when I felt much more lonely and was surrounded by much stranger people who agreed with me. And now I feel a much larger and more normal group of people ha shares my views. And yet government just keeps getting bigger. So maybe it's not enough. Well, you know, culture comes before politics. Uh, and I think – and politics come before law. So I think that, you know, the culture has to change first. I think to some degree it has. Uh, I think you're not, you know, I think libertarianism doesn't look nearly as weird as it used to. Uh, I think you see shifts on a number of attitudes. And if you actually look at the popular discussion, I mean, there's a fairly dumb article in Salon that says, uh, this, you know, we can have have uh, gun prohibition because, look, we have gay marriage. But if you look at the things that have changed in American society, generally in terms of social movements, they're, the ones that succeed are in favor of more individual liberty, not less. Well, that's true. I mean, the gay marriage movement basically has worked not because Americans have any huge uh, excitement about gay marriage per se, uh, because the majority of heterosexual Americans don't really care much, but they have a general bias in favor of you know, letting people do what they want. That's true. Uh, and frankly, I think that's driven the failure of the gun control movement, too. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be said for that, and I think that's that's a hopeful sign. I, I you know I, I don't think that that's a reason to relax and be certain that nothing bad can happen in this best of all possible worlds. But at the same time, I do think that uh, there's a strong tendency for libertarians uh, to get kind of gloomy and to think that nothing can happen. And if you actually look at the daily lives of average people in the United States over the last several decades. Uh, in many ways, they've gotten much freer. So, no, just I totally agree. The only the only difference is that small area called your pocketbook. But other than that, which which I don't I don't want to understate how important that other aspect of our lives are the 
the other kind of freedoms. But um, I think the economic freedom part is the thing that is most at risk, and um, it does underpin civilization in a certain extent. So I'm a little worried about it. Well, no, you're right. But I think actually that's one of the things you – I think Milton Friedman once said the reason you'd never get to a fully libertarian society was that if you got halfway there, everybody would be so rich and happy they'd quit trying. <laughs> and sort of the optimistic view is to say that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that's that actually we that. sort of – we lightened up in the 80s with a lot of deregulation and such and a lot of – you know, and people got a lot richer and happier. And so they kind of got complacent and quit trying. And it may be that one of the things we need is to go through this – Obama economic stagnation and malaise, and uh, for people to realize that this stuff actually makes a difference, that you can't just sort of take it for granted that a big wave of prosperity and freedom is going to always be cresting under you without any effort on your part. Uh, and I think the key to having that happen is actually for us to make sure that people realize that, you know, why they're stagnating, why something that can't go on forever won't, and what can't go on forever, and why it can't. And I think that's a message to get out. That's actually sort of been my long-term strategy with this series of these columns in USA Today is to try to get this kind of stuff out to people who are, uh, you know, outside the usual uh, libertarian fold. Yeah, I, I have to – I like your argument about complacency, although I do think some of the deregulation of the 80s is greatly overstated. It's not, in the seven, late 70s, it's nice to get rid of uh, – some of the regulations of transportation and air travel and trucking and those things, they were replaced by different kinds of regulations that limited freedom elsewhere. But there have been some moments of, of actual freedom. That's well, good. the biggest breakthrough was the Internet, which uh, you know, simply grew faster than the regulators could keep up. And unfortunately, you know, that, that's coming to an end. I mean, the, the Internet is still the most free place in terms of activity in the economy, and it'll probably stay that for a while. But the regulators, uh, the special interest, and all the others are definitely trying to carve things up and get um, a bigger piece of the pie and more control. And you know, you can't rely on that forever. I think that I think the internet made a lot of people over the last twenty years complacent as well. Well, talk about what's what you're worried about coming there because uh, it seems to me there is a tremendous cultural um, force to leave quote leaving the internet alone. I understand that. What we observe in our day-to-day lives isn't actually what the uh, regulatory environment is actually about. But, you know, for example, the attempts to tax the Internet haven't been very successful. What regulations are you worried about for the Internet? Well, because we already have – there's already some uh, pretty uh, draconian regulation on the Internet, uh, you know, stemming from the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act and things like that, uh, intellectual property stuff uh, – now, it tends to be kind of under-enforced, which I think is great, uh, but it does give them an opportunity to go after people uh, when somebody's targeted. I think all, we're going to see more of that. I mean, we've had the SOPA, you know, the Stop Online Piracy Act effort last year, which failed and apparently uh, was a sufficiently painful experience for members of Congress that they're a bit gun-shy now, but that won't last forever. And, you know, the way these things work is they keep trying until – they get what they want, typically, or until they're beaten down so badly that they don't try for a while. Well, yeah, so, it's, the, it's the Willie Sutton theory of regulation, right? You ro- right. Willie Sutton asked why Rob Banks. That's where the money is. It's hard for politicians to ignore the Internet. It's where the action is, the money, the activity. So it is a constant temptation. I mean, I think, that, I think that's right. And I think, you know, 
the optimistic look at, at the SOPA battle was, you know, they came at us in the same old way and we beat them in the same old way. Uh, but the pessimistic look is to say, and they'll be back again. <laughs> you know? It's true. So, so I think that's, they, you know, it's a constant back and forth on yeah. that front. Yeah. Vigilance, vigilance. Uh, let's turn to your book, An Army of Davids, uh, which uh, was written seven years ago or came out seven years ago, where you noted the phenomenon of the decentralization of power away from traditional centralized uh, nodes of power, such as media being an obvious example, and your success with Instapundit, which has been extraordinary. It's an incredible blog. Um, what did you say in the book at the time about that decentralization? What do you think has happened in the meanwhile that's either reinforced or changed your mind? Well, the basic thesis of the book was that technology was changing a lot of things. You know, we went through sort of the industrial era with its emphasis on economies of scope and scale, where to do a lot of things worthwhile uh, in an efficient way, you had to be big. You know, I mean, when a steam engine had to be big enough to power a factory, pretty much all you were going to do with steam engines was power factories. Uh, and a lot of stuff worked that way. And, you know, we, we got to the point where bigger was better. And, uh, I was watching not that long ago, an old movie from the thirties. It was, um, HG Wells things to come. And when you see the future in the, I don't forget what, I think it's supposed to be the 22nd century or something in that, you know, what are there, but a bunch of huge locomotive sized machines chewing up mountains because to somebody in 1930, that was a, that was the future, right? Yeah, that, that would Very be a big, big deal. Thing. Right. Uh, and, you know, and it reminds me of the old, you know, you, I quote this in the book, that sort of when the tide started to change was the joke from the old Soviet Union, right? Introducing the Soviet microchip, the world's largest. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, the Soviets were always bragging about having the world's biggest this and the world's biggest that, the yeah. biggest dam, the biggest airplane. That was their, they, were, they were an industrial age uh, economy uh, taken to the point of absurdity. Uh, well, now that's not the way things go. And. You know, just for example, with this podcast, you know, and things like that, uh, with with a laptop computer and uh, an iPhone, you've got capabilities that TV networks didn't have a couple of decades ago. And as a result, you see all kinds of journalism and opinion and other stuff being done that never would have made it in the old days. Uh, you see that in all kinds of sort of micro manufacturing and sales. I mean, I, I know people, they all seem to be women who make money selling handcrafts on Etsy and make a living that way. You know, and people who sell stuff on eBay individually. Uh, if you're an eBay power seller, you can get health insurance. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can make a living now and do stuff uh, as an individual or a small group that used to require a big organization. And so that's the basic theme of Army of David. And I sort of walk through that in a variety of areas, media, music, manufacturing, uh, different stuff. Um, how do I feel that? So, I mean, I think, I think that holds true to a great degree. And one thing I will say that's sort of a cheerful sign is you don't even need a free country for that to work. For example, in China, one of the interesting things that's happened is you know, the army used to drive all over people's property uh, and not worry about it. And then everybody got cell phones and they started complaining. And weirdly, even in what's fundamentally a military dictatorship, when a lot of people complain, they start to notice and they change their ways. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing thing. Well, what do you think <clears> – <throat> how would you sum up the impact, though, of of technology? We're talking about this podcast or other media 
changes. Certainly the blogosphere has given a lot of entertainment to a lot of people. What do you think its impact has been on media, actually? Um, and how important well, is it, it? How important is it? Well, I mean, if you look at the fact that traditional media organizations are going broke, I mean, Newsweek doesn't have a print edition and barely even exists anymore. Uh, I think there's real impact, and I know, you know in terms of my own media habits and those of a lot of people I know, I spend a lot of time on things that are not big media productions. And my brother teaches history uh, at Northern Kentucky University. And one interesting thing he's done several times is he's asked his class of undergraduates to name their favorite band. And what he finds is that not only do basically all of them have different favorite bands, most of them haven't even heard of each other's favorite bands. You know, it's not like in the 60s or 70s where, you know, half the class would say Beatles and half the class would say Stones, uh, you know, or something like that. Uh, now the culture is sufficiently uh, diverse that uh, there's sort of nobody that really markets the whole thing. Uh, <clears throat> I love that. I think that's just a, a beautiful thing. Um, but a lot of people, I'm not one of them, but a lot of people are alarmed by the the death of traditional media. Thinks, you know, we're listening to too many echo chambers. Uh, it's not healthy. It's not good for democracy. Do you, do you agree or disagree? Um, I think that their complaint is that we have more than one echo chamber, and it's not the one they control. Uh, I mean, I, I think that traditionally, I mean, you talk about how in the 60s when you, or 70s, if you were a libertarian, you felt like a weirdo. Well, that was because uh, libertarianism didn't really get any attention in the well, traditional well, media. Well, I didn't say I felt like a weirdo. I said I felt lonely. And the people who were around me were weirdos. mostly Sorry, weirdos. That's right. It could have that's included right. me. I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not ruling that out, but I just want to get, want to get, I want to get the, the facts straight. <laughs> well, I really think that, um, you know, I really think that the, that argument is fairly weak. The argument that we're all going to be a bunch of echo chambers talking to each other. I mean, that's, that's essentially Cass Sunstein's original argument in Republic.com and, uh, even in the second edition of that, he kind of backed away from it. But the other side of it is that I think that if people really believe that, if, if I, for example, ran the New York Times and I believed that that was so bad, then it would, it would, I think, behoove me to make my newspaper a lot more inclusive, uh, than the New York Times is or most of the other places that you hear about this. Well, they have struggled to stay competitive for a variety of reasons, one of which is their unwillingness, I think, or inability to respond to the change. Um, a lot of cultural reasons for that and blindness, uh, myopia is part of it. But um, it's been interesting. It's interesting to watch. What do you think is coming to the blogosphere? More of the same or anything different? Any trends you see that are worth noting? Um, I – it seems to me that the blogosphere is in a fairly stable state right now. Uh, I mean, you have, you still have, which I think is interesting, people who appear and sort of become stars pretty rapidly. Uh, so I think it's still quite open to new entrants. I don't think it's locked in. But the sort of style and format of blogging have now been stable for a number of years. Uh, Twitter was, was going to be the next big thing, and my sense is it's never quite been the next big thing. Journalists love Twitter. Because Twitter is great when you're standing in line waiting to get into a congressional hearing and you've got your smartphone out. You know, you can click through it and snipe at each other and uh, that sort of thing. On the other hand, uh, you know, I find it sort of unsatisfying and I actually find it kind of – the bad thing about Twitter is it's, it's 
it's emotionally agitating if you pay a lot of attention to it. it, it I find it harder to. Why is that, you think? I, I, um, I've heard that claim, and I, I, I feel a little bit of it myself in my uh, tweet uh, activity. Why is that? I, you know, it's, I think a lot of it's the format. You get exposed to a lot of different stuff. Uh, the 140 character limit, I think, encourages people to be more provocative. There's something about Twitter that encourages a lot more sort of uh, just back and forth flat fights. Uh, and I think, you know, that's, I think that's a lot of it. Uh, but I don't know. I just don't like it. I mean, Facebook, you know, as a social media forum, uh, is sort of more social and less media. I think Twitter, uh, on the other hand, doesn't have much of a social aspect, really. And I think that it is just, it just seems to be harsher. It, it's, it's more like people sort of driving by and yelling something out the window at each other. Yeah, I, I feel that sometimes. I think we just, obviously, we need to increase the characters to 150. We need a government regulation to increase the minimum and be fine. <laughs> Civility would reign. Maybe it's 160. You know, we could, we'll fill it out. Uh, let's uh, let's close talking about your music career. Tell us about it. Ah, uh, well, it's it's pretty much uh, on hiatus now. But uh, you know, I was I, I was involved in music off and on. Uh, in college, I, I managed a rock and roll band for quite a while and wrote songs for it. Did various other stuff. Occasionally, sang backup or played something. But my main musical training is the cello, so that doesn't work that well with rock and roll. I, I played Dust in the Wind once when we had a request for that. <laughs> That dates it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, but then in the 90s, I got involved again producing uh, rock and roll and blues to start with. And then uh, later start, got interested in techno and started producing my own. My brother and I went through this period. It was a very fertile period for both of us uh, where we would make up the name of a band first. Then we decide what kind of band would have that name. Then we would write songs and produce and record an album for that band uh, and release it on the late lamented mp3.com and some of them were just complete goofs like um, we had an eco folk band called the Meadowlarks whose big song was how many flowers must die about the cruelty of Valentine's Day uh, is that and, available anywhere uh, you know that stuff I mean I still have the CDs but mp3.com just died and all that stuff went offline uh, it used to, I used to have it on iTunes cause I had a distribution deal through Disgraceland Records that put it on iTunes, but then they went away and I, so right now I don't think you can get that anywhere. Then we did. I'd like to say that's a shame, but I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> uh, it, it seems yeah, like a shame. Well, it actually charted fairly well on Valentine's Day in I think 2000 or something. Uh, then a couple of the bands were bigger, like Mobius Dick was a techno, and it comes from an old math joke, what's non-orientable and lives in the sea, Mobius Dick. So uh, that was that we decided had to be a techno band, so I started doing that. And then I discovered I actually really liked that, and that was pretty good. And uh, one of those albums actually was the number one album on mp3.com for several weeks, which I was kind of proud of. This was uh, on the side, a, right? This was while yeah. you were doing this this day job of law professor? Right, yeah. That, I would, I would work on that stuff at night after my wife and daughter went to bed. That's impressive. So we did that for a while. You know, it was it was fun. We had uh, an all-country band called Nebraska Guitar Militia, and I actually was pretty proud of some of the lyrics I wrote for that. I think it was pretty good. But uh, what I found that's weird is that when I started blogging, blogging uses the same part of my brain. Like being a law professor and writing law review articles and teaching classes does not use the same part of my brain as doing music does. 
But blogging does, so that it's not a vacation from blogging to do music or a vacation from doing music to blog. So I think it just all crowded out. Yeah, well, the the well needs to fill up and um, your creativity needs to recharge. And if you're doing one of those, it's harder to have anything left over for the other problem. I, I guess that's right. I, I've sort of compared blogging, at least the way I do it, to DJing, which is that, you know, you're 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 sort of spinning the tunes and taking the samples from one thing and another and putting them in an order that you think is pleasing and interesting. And, you know, so maybe it really does use the same part of the brain. Yeah, I, I, well, it's very possible. I think it's the creative part, which is uh, not to say anything against your law work, uh, but um, I think there's a um, – I think of it sometimes just there's some exuberance of feeling alive when you do something creative and novel and and a good blog post or a great song. They have that character if you do them well. And I think that's probably – it's a similar part of your somewhere, brain, soul, wherever. Yeah, I really, I really think that's right. I really think that's right. So what's next for Glenn Reynolds? Well, uh, you know, I – I hate to say more of the same. That sounds so uncreative, but honestly, I think my life rocks. So probably pretty much more of the same. Um, I have, uh, I have just put out on SSRN uh, a couple of weeks ago a piece called, um, Ham Sandwich Nation, Due Process When Everything is a Crime, which, uh, is one of the things, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but this is something I started trying to write in the mid nineties and it just, I had the idea clear in my head, but when it never seemed to write. Uh, I always, every summer I'd say, this is my summer project, and then I wind up writing something else instead. Uh, and then after the David Gregory and Aaron Swartz thing, sort of back to back, I got motivated, sat down and wrote it pretty much over a weekend. And right now it's number one for law on SSRN and, uh, there's about 12,000 downloads. And I actually want to look further into this question of sort of prosecutors discretion. Cause we've got this weird thing where when the police investigate you, you get a lot of due process protection. And if you go to trial in court, you have a lot of due process protection. But when prosecutors are deciding what to charge you with and what plea bargains to offer or accept, they have almost complete discretion. And yet that's where about 95% of the criminal justice system actually operates. Seems like a good thing to focus on. Well, it's it's sort of funny, you know, uh, once you raise it, people are kind of like, "Yeah, I wonder why nobody's talked about that before." Uh, but I think that's uh, I think that's pretty much um, a big issue, and I think it ties in with the expansion of the government. You know, we have all these criminal laws that are essentially regulatory; they're not intuitive. Uh, there's no possible way any average person can know them all, and yet, ultimately, you know, if you believe Harvey Silverglade, and I do, you're averaging three felonies a day. My guest today has been Glenn Reynolds. Glenn, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.